0: Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena and today our guest founded a global events business that aims to sexually empower and liberate women. Now Killing Kittens has over 180,000 members worldwide. She has also started a safe dating app and the Sisterhood Group, where women take part in sports adventures and challenges. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Emma Sale to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Just to let our listeners know, what is Killing Kittens and what can someone expect to happen at a KK event?
1: Basically, it's an adult social network network. It's probably the biggest sex positive social network in the world. It's now it's a tech business. I mean, what started as an event, more of an events business 17 years ago as a platform for women, especially to explore their sexuality and not be judged and have a safe space in a community has now evolved into a world where anyone can feel safe and non-judged. And as I said, it's just sort of one big sex positive community and dating site. And then you've got all the events on top of it.
0: Yeah, that's a whole world now. <laughs> And so say I buy a ticket for a Killing Kittens event, what can I expect to happen at the event? We've got lots of different types of events, but the one
1: I know, yeah, the full-on Killing Kittens event, they're always masked. And every male has to be accompanied by a female. The events are like in private houses or they're big clubs. Like, you know, we take over the Ministry of Sound in London sometimes, which is 900 people. And it's all very experiential. And we have lots of different kinds of acts from the cabaret shows, the burlesque performers, DJs. There's always a champagne or cocktail reception. And then what we do have is these big playrooms. So you can wander off from the main kind of party bed into these playrooms, which is sort of lots of beds. And also we have like dungeon playrooms where we might have good dominatrix or sort of dungeon master. And in those rooms, you can experiment. And if you wanna have sex, you can have sex. If you wanna watch, you can do whatever you want. And a lot of people like the charged atmosphere. They like the fact that it's very feminine energy so that all the events are very much, you walk in and you get struck by the feminine energy. You know, most London nightclubs or bars or anywhere in the world, you're gonna walk in and it's always very masculine. So the whole thing with KK is having that feminine energy. And that gives that whole kind of sense of belonging and the nurturing and the community. And the consent and the boundaries and, you know, less of that kind of rigid testosterone factor is involved. So we do get lots of people that just sort of want to come and party. And actually, a lot of people will come and they'll say that, you know, they were there for five hours and didn't see one naked person. So it's not sort of, you know, sex in your face and everyone has to get naked at all. It's just a very kind of sexually charged, empowering atmosphere.
0: What motivated you to create Killing Kitten? So you created it in 2005. How did the opportunity come about and, and what was your motivation? It wasn't like a sudden thing. It was just this sort of fire inside me of just injustice
1: and imbalance. And from when I was little and a real tomboy and wanted to play with the boys and climb trees and I did loads of sports or, you know, constantly being told, well, that's what boys do. Boys do that. You know, let boys be boys. It's like, well, why can't girls be girls and be naked up a tree? And so what started little it kind of really sort of made me aware quite early on of sort of an imbalance that goes on between girls and boys. I grew up in the Middle East as well, so I saw even more of that imbalance. And as I got older, you know, the hormones kick in and then you go into the dating world. So then in my early twenties and university was like, hang on a minute, boys can sleep around and do whatever they want sexually and they're considered lads and legends for shagging loads of girls. But God forbid a girl has a one night stand and then there's slut shames. Also the guilt you feel as a girl of, should I be doing this and being judged? That kind of made me even more and more angry. And it kind of was the time, around the time, you know, when Sex in the City had come out and Lay Low Sex Toys had gone into Selfridges and Anne Summers had sort of hit the high streets. So there was this kind of talk about female sexual liberation, which was all very well, but I wasn't seeing it. It was all kind of lip service to me. And um, so I just wanted to just flip around the norms of society and create a world where women were in control and they were, you know, sexually in control. They were, had to be the ones that made the first move. It was all about them having a safe space and always had sort of these chat rooms, basic kind of forums online so people could ask questions and find like-minded individuals and sort of realised also that a lot of girls back then, you know, this is 17 years ago, felt uncomfortable talking to their best mates about anything to do with sex as well. So it was sort of, well, who do they go to to talk? Talk about it if you can't speak to your closest girlfriends. So that was sort of yeah, that was the motivation behind it. It was a bit of a screw you and the world. I want to create a world that is balanced and equal in the bedroom. You know, it's not just equality; it's equity. It's it's all well saying equal, but unless you have that equal equity and stakes and what you want, I mean, that's in the business world and it's in the bedroom. Um, then it's still in balance So it's sort of yeah, the fight continues. <laughs> and why is it called killing kittens? I named it after three nights of no sleep in Ibiza. To be honest, <laughs> um, we had a, a wedding, and someone who can make it joined in and said, "Are you guys just all sat around killing kittens at the moment?" It's cyber slang for every time you masturbate, God kills a kitten. <laughs> so they were just joking about, you know, were we just sitting around twiddling our thumbs, doing not a lot. That was it. I was like, I love that. K's a very powerful letter, so from day one, it was KK, and it just fitted, and it was kind of something that just suddenly came then Um, and it's been kk ever since and it's surprising actually how few people actually ever ask why it's called that because it is a fairly ridiculous
0: name (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering why you had the idea to start parties specifically so I guess you saw this injustice and imbalance between the way women and men are treated you know in terms of sex and sexuality why did you feel like the solution was parties
1: do you know I hadn't I hadn't been to many parties before? You know I was not in that scene at all. I was a very insecure little early twenty-year-old. But growing up in the Middle East, the parties I'd seen, you know, living in Kuwait where alcohol's illegal and stuff, these big underground parties were unbelievable. You didn't find out until the day of the event where it was. And it was a real, real mix of people and ages and everything from Russian prostitutes to air to diplomats. I've always loved humans and I'd always organized events and parties and brought loads of different people together. And it was also, well, if you're a gay man in, in London, you know, or a man in any show or form, I mean, it's very easy to go out and experiment sexually and... If there is this female sexual revolution happening and girls realising that they can have a voice in the bedroom, well, where can they go to experiment and explore in a safe space where, you know, they can get naked and do what they want and experiment with another girl? And, you know, I've always said, you know, I don't think there's such a thing as a totally straight female. I think girls are naturally bi-curious. It's just how we are. And so if you are bi-curious, if you have thought about what it would be like to sleep with another girl, then where would you go with the parties? Was providing that safe space for all women to come and explore and feel in control and safe, really? Safety was the big one. Even though we're a tech business, the offline events are a massive, massive part of our ethos and who we are as a business. I'm a very offline person and just think you can't be human interaction and you can build all the tech you want in the world and communicate online as much as you want, but nothing will ever beat that physical energy you get from actual physical social interactions.
0: What were those first KK events like and how have they changed in the past, you know, like 15, 16 years?
1: We've expanded into more of the immersive, experiential, more kind of club night party events. And then obviously all the workshops and masterclasses and things we do. So, yeah, complete mix. What has changed is the diversity of the crowd has changed massively because, you know, gender and sexuality has exploded massively over the last decades. You know, when we launched, it it was very binary. It was sort of you were straight, you were gay. And, you know, the weird craziness was if you were bi, which now is just really old. Whereas now it's sort of, you know, you've got the non-binary, you've got trans members. And also that you'd never see any men-on-men action or experimenting and stuff, whereas now it's sort of, it is a complete mix. And I just say the sexuality spectrum is, I don't think anyone stays in one place on it. And I think because society's got more accepting of that, it's allowed people to be more themselves. Even like, you know, if you're in what looks like a straight marriage, then you might both be bicurious. You can be that and you can experiment. You know, I've always said the future's human. I've never liked the future's female strap line um, that everyone assumes I'd be like tattooed on my forehead. But no, I've never liked it. I never liked the us and them. It's like kind of us all just being together,
0: really. How did the pandemic and all the lockdowns affect the parties?
1: Well, they were flat on their face for 18 months. So, um, yeah, so for 18 months, we didn't have those parties. But because we had been building this platform that was always launching the summer of 2020, we'd already started moving all our workshops and masterclasses into like virtual online, which we'd started at the beginning of that year, being in 2020. So when, as soon as we went into lockdown, we could flip all of them for literally within a week, all the events online. And then we launched that week one of lockdown virtual house parties, which is just sort of was to us you know we were never going to fill this gaping black hole of revenue um from the big events but it was keeping the community together we knew there was a lot of our members living on their own so we wanted to do this friday night virtual house party where everyone could come in and chat and do whatever they wanted on screen and we had party games um and we're still doing them actually because they're a good sort of icebreaker and kind of a stepping stone into the kk world um But we knew they'd be dead in the water. We also knew we'd be the last people to be allowed to open again. You know, I had loads of friends in hospitality who were like, we're never going to open. And suddenly it's like, we've only got, you know, rules of six. And I'm like, wrong audience. (laughs) We literally can't open until there are no restrictions whatsoever. So I think, when was it, July last year, we were back in the game. But we, as I said, the whole tech, it was a bit, it was kind of a real yin yang on the business front, because it allowed us to roll out all the new tech platform that was always coming that summer anyway, to a very captive audience who were at home. And also our whole team, we've got a very agile team that all flipped to being online, digital, working digital side of the business. So there was no white noise of the events taking up anyone's time, because there are a lot, you know, events take a lot of time, a lot of manpower, A lot gets discussed about them. So actually, suddenly, we were 100% focused on the tech rollout. Um, So it was a bit of a blessing on that front. And that went really well. And so we caught up a lot on the revenue on that side that we'd lost on the event side. And then we always knew that as soon as we opened up, that, you know, you look back through history and thousands of years. And after wars and pandemics, sex goes up. So it was a sure thing that demand would be there. So it was just a matter of waiting until we were allowed. And then actually we opened up ticketing and we sold out six months worth of events within like three months. And that was before the country had reopened. So we started selling the tickets, I think in April, having been told that it looked like we were reopening end of June. And by the time we reopened, we'd sold out until the following January. Yeah, so it was a bit of a weird, yeah, a weird one on a business front with half of it flying, half of it dead in the water. Me crawling walls because I'm an offline person, while my business partner, who's like an amazing rain man, um, was living his best life. Um, So, not having to see any people, and and, you know, he'd live in a cave if he could. So, yeah, it was sort of half the team were crawling walls, and the other half were really happy.
0: (laughs) So, yeah. And do you get involved with the tech side of the business? a lot like do you know much about kind of the the app development
1: yeah do you know what? I know what we work very well together it Hadley that my CRI and um proper yin and Yang I know what's going on I see all the design stuff coming through I don't like details so there's no point including me in like big tech chats because I'll just zone out I've got ADHD you've got me for about 10 minutes and then my head's on a different cloud somewhere um so I know enough and I know enough and I know I can I can understand it all and I can see we go through the roadmap of what's rolling out at what time and also the design side of it and and the energy of it and the feel of it and what we want it to do. So that side of it, yeah, I'm all involved in, um, in the digital marketing side, just on the creativity side of it. But, you know, that's the whole point of businesses, isn't it, really? You get people in who are better than you and also that do the things that you really have no interest in. <laughs> so there's no point pretending to be interested in something if you're not i still very much am on the mission of what we're trying to do and how we do that and the energy you get from kk and the site and all the digital sides of it making sure that that's still all in line with like you know with our why basically the soul of the business without having to sit in two-hour tech meetings on the coding of it all no thanks
0: <laughs> <laughs> fair enough um I just want to go back to, you know, when you started it in 2005. I mean, the stigma around, I mean, there's still a stigma today around sex in general. Um, but I imagine in 2005, you know, the stigma was a lot bigger. Um, what was it like starting something like this at that time? And why did you think there was a gap in the market for something like this?
1: You well, are. I mean, the stigma of stigma now is still. I mean, even now, when you're trying to raise money, when you're trying to get bank accounts. I mean, even even business insurance. The people that insured us for the last three years suddenly last year said we can't insure you anymore. It is hard work, and it was even harder then. And you know, I had everyone around me pretty much saying, "What are you doing? You're mad," type thing and you know, other friends thinking I was just trying to get attention. I think the main thing with it is that every bone in my body believed it was needed and I wanted to change the world. That was it in a nutshell. So right from minute one, it was like I'm in this kind of tunnel vision of, I need to change the world and this needs to change and be fixed. And it was never like, right, there's a big business plan. I wanna make millions. That doesn't even come into my head even now. Luckily, I've got a good business partner that does think about the money side of it. So. It then wasn't personal. It wasn't emotional. I was just sort of the messenger kind of thing, creating something for a much bigger mission that needed to be changed and needed to be fixed. And because of that, and because as I've said before, that fire in my belly. That actually, every time someone said that's ridiculous, or someone sent me abuse, or like online abuse, or it still happens now. Or you got someone when you were out judging you and telling you it's disgusting and seedy, and that just fueled the fire even more. So actually, the more that happened, the more the fire was fueled.
0: How do you navigate working in an industry with so much stigma around it? Have you always gotten a negative backlash, a negative press? H- has it changed at all in the past kind of 16 odd years? It's funny because like we've never had like really negative, negative media because we've always
1: have said that, you know, we've been like Ron Seal, we do exactly what we, it says on the tin, basically. And um so... It's never been like, oh, I got you, caught you out. You've got, you've got sex going on. It's like because from day one, it's like this is going on. So actually, the when things get written about, there's never been really, you know. Anything negative, there's been a bit of a shock and awe. So, and what has happened in sort of the last five, six years is actually there's been much more press on the business side of things. And actually, hang on a minute, though, this is not just like a silly little event business. This is actually a business and a business that's needed. So, actually, the bigger picture is being looked at more. You know, we've won some business awards and stuff, which, you know, would never have happened 15 years ago. And I think actually, COVID's helped that. Because suddenly people are like, how are you still operating? How did the business not go under? How did you not end up sacking people? It's like suddenly it's like, oh, hang on a minute, they're a business. And doing the financial raises as well has kind of made people realize what the figures look like. Every day is a bit of a battle. And, you know, after 17 years, there's still probably a moment every single day where I go, what am I doing? (laughs) This is exhausting, but you just, yeah, you keep going. You have another glass of wine and you just keep going.
0: And in those initial stages, was it difficult to get funding?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, I didn't get any funding for the first like 12 years. So I, we didn't really need funding. It was only suddenly when I looked at the figures, this is what, five years ago, six years ago, and realized the online side was well, making the same amount of money as the offline side. But actually, I was kind of blagging the tech. I think there was four of us. Yeah, and I was kind of blagging. Well, why don't we put that fee up there and do that? And I just thought, actually, if I can get someone on board and a team on board that really know what they're doing on the tech side of things, then this could this could be big. And that's that's where the value of the business lies. And you know, in a digital world, that's a bit that needs pushing. And also, it's the way to get to the whole world on that front. So that's when we got my business partner on board. And also when Me Too happened, I knew that, you know, if we didn't raise the money and it was go big or go home and really go for it, then some Silicon Valley upstart with a million quid in his pocket was just going to come flying over top and build a platform claiming to be sort of, you know, all female empowering when it came to sex. So I just thought, well, we've been going 11 years and we've got the members at that time, about 100,000, I think. So, yeah, let's just go for it. Um, So, yeah, so we did
0: our first raise actually in 2018. How did you find that experience, especially being in an industry where there's so much stigma around it?
1: Well, to be honest, for the first couple of months, it was, it was the obvious kind of, you go out, you raise money, you know, in cities, whether it's not VCs, but more like Angel Investor types. So you're getting big chunks off a few individuals and it just wasn't sitting right. And it was just, there was something about it. I was like, I don't want five city boys running around saying they own part of Killing Kittens. And we actually then decided because our main thing is all about community. And we've got so many members that actually we went down the Cedars route to do our first raise via our members. And we closed 500 in like three weeks doing that and that was probably the most humbling experience of my life really and that realizing actually that there was this whole army behind us and what we do and I think we had close to a thousand people on that first raise and then actually we went again on the second one 2019 did another one for another half a million that doubled the value of the business so I think we went from 5 million to like 10 million again it was three members mainly and again on cedars yeah so those two were quite straightforward the one we've just closed now we did start talking to vcs at you know at the end of last year because again we wanted a, sort of a pre series a 500 to do like a sprint year before we start a series a raise next year um And the conversations that we were having were like, these figures are amazing. The growth is amazing. We just can't be seen to be investing in this industry. So had we been, you know, a lifestyle brand or, you know, FinTech or anything else with the figures we've got, it would have been a no-brainer. It was sort of considered a vice. And again, that fuels my fire even more just to go, for God's sake, it's just sex. (laughs) It's kind of everyone needs it. It's what fuels you. It makes us who we are. So why don't we spend the time and energy and the money on actually bringing out the best in us? your sexual wellness and well-being is as important as your physical and mental health and how much money is pumped into those industries again it was kind of this is ridiculous and we went out to the members that had put more in the previous round to then to kind of start a raise and again go the crowd route um so we did that and we were hoping to get 500 and we've just closed at a million overfunded yeah in about four weeks closed it got it and again that's all it's all members and wines you know people putting in 100 quid people putting in 100 grand which is just brilliant because of what we've just done now and you know the amount of money we've got and our figures and stuff we've already had some vcs contact us saying when you start the series a then we want to talk so you just go okay great but you should have got on the train at the start <laughs> because now it's worth like about 18 million so you
0: could have come in at five million like <laughs> four years ago but Sodom, now they want in so we'll let them in and do you think there's a funding problem for female business owners uh, to to receive funding? I untick every box.
1: And we've got, you know, a female founded, and we're in the adult industry. So it's, it's a double whammy. And I often will have an initial conversation and then I'll tee up and introduce them into HADS, you know, a business partner. Because I'm just like, I can see this one that he needs a man. I think the unconscious bias in a lot of people, especially the finance side of the city and investors, they might not admit it, but it's in them. You know, a lot of people starting up businesses are in their 30s, especially for women, and a lot are doing it after having kids. And so it's not business, it's a hobby, whereas you get a man in his late 30s sort of launching business in there, and it wouldn't even cross their mind whether they've had a kid or not. And actually, the irony is women are way more efficient post kids but I know I am I've got three kids and my time is so precious that I'll do things in like 20 minutes bursts, and I haven't got time for a three-hour business lunch or anything like that you just get stuff done and you compartmentalize and you multitask at an unbelievable rate so actually the irony is these businesses being launched by women are way more efficient and also the figures are there. It's like the figures are actually there that female founded businesses do better than male founded businesses. That's not me ganging men and women. It's there. It's, you know, the stats are there to be seen. And actually I was talking to someone in a bank who did, you know, the bounce back loans. And I just said, out of curiosity, do you have figures on the companies that have folded in the last couple of years? He said, funny enough, he said, we do have it. And the ones founded by females are not closing down. The male-founded businesses that have asked for loans in the last pandemic, various different loans, are the ones that are folding and going into administration. There is a real unconscious bias in people. There's also the, you know, this thing that actually the questions that get asked, when it's a man in front of them, they'll be asked about success. How on that? When it's a woman, they ask the failure questions. And the negative questions, it's just it's stuff like that. So how about, you know, actually, maybe, the, you know, the VCs and the people making these decisions should have proper workshops, <laughs> gender-like diversity workshops beforehand about language, so that actually they're aware, because a lot of the time they're just not aware of it until it's pointed out. I can't even say it's getting better, to be honest, because the stats over the last four years haven't got any better. COVID hasn't helped, because it's been mainly women giving up jobs. Um, So I've got to keep fighting. But to be honest, we kind of we need, we need men on our side. We need men to be aware. We need men to actually go, oh, that was a bit awkward and I've been a bit out of order and maybe I should change my language and start asking different questions. There's not much more women can do. We
0: need, we need the man folk <laughs> to get on board. <laughs> you mentioned the Me Too movement. How did this impact you on a personal level, but also how do you think it impacted Killing Kittens and the various other uh, businesses you started?
1: I mean, to be honest, on a personal level, I'd been fighting Me Too (laughs) since, um, well, since forever, my whole life, Um, and wanting to fix it. Then suddenly, you know, there was a hashtag for it, for what I'd been doing for however long... And on a business-wide, obviously, it, you know, it was very much in line with what we were doing and allowing women to have a voice and, you know, to fight and say, actually, we want equality and you can't do that. And um, we want respect and consent and boundaries and everything. So actually, it gave the business more fire. Also, we had a big increase in female members joining up because it obviously made a lot of women realize that they'd been putting up with stuff they shouldn't have been putting up with. Um, so we were that safe space to come. It was great personally as well, because as I said earlier, when I first launched it and people thought I was going mad, actually suddenly it was like, well, actually, we just started this a decade ago. Then actually a lot of people that had kind of been off with me at the beginning were suddenly back on the bandwagon of going, actually, you were right, and we see what you were doing. You're not mad. You weren't after attention. It got us a lot more respect business-wise, and it got me a lot more respect about actually what I was doing and wanted to achieve. Because suddenly there was this mainstream movement doing exactly what we'd been doing.
0: Tell me about Safe Day and Sisterhood Group. How did you end up starting these?
1: people going out on dates and checking in and telling people within our community um in our chat groups are saying look i'm going out on this tinder date if i haven't checked back into this group then send out a search party." like loads of people do so we just decided to build an app that did just that so you have your safe people in there you put into the app everything like where you're going you now what side it was from all the details you have of wherever you're going and the, and the person involved and then you put your safe people in so you have as many as you want and then the time you're going to check back into the app and if you don't check back into the app then those safe people will get a text message or an email depending on what you set up saying so and so has you as a safe person they haven't checked back in this is their last location where they are going so we decided to do it as a standalone app because we thought actually kind of teenagers can use it parents can use it with their teenage kids and then in the sister group you've got sister which is sort of like a mentoring platform networking platform for professional women And assisted is something I kind of set up at the same time pretty much as I did KK um, because I like adventure sports and extreme sports. Again, it was getting girls to come along and do crazy races with me around the world and raise money for charity in the process. It's a similar ethos. It's that community and also making girls think they can, you know, do what men are doing. So actually a lot of that extreme sport adventure racing world, well, back then, you know, was very male. Some of the races I did, you know, might have 200 people in and there were 10 of us women. And I think it was a bit of a a you mentality in my head. If you're doing it, I'm going to do it just in the sports world rather than the sex world
0: a really big part of all of these apps is of course empowering women in all ways sexually but also allowing women to feel safe and confident in society which is absolutely amazing female empowerment female sexual empowerment do you feel like it's improving or like how do you think it's changed sort of since since you started kk I think it is improving,
1: but also it's kind of less binary. A bit like, you know, sexuality is less like male, female. There is that having to work together. And I think also I don't like sort of jumping on about, you know, this female empowerment side of things. You know, stop using it as an excuse to not be getting a promotion, to not be raising money. People say to me, like, how did you do it when you, you know, I was 25 and it was 17 years ago and in a male world. And I always say I never got the memo. I didn't get the memo that I was a female and it should be hard and harder for me. I just wanted to do something. So I just went and did it. And I was kind of oblivious to the fact that it was all men around me in that world. Just get on with it. Stop making excuses. Stop playing the female cards to not be doing stuff. Oh, I didn't get that promotion. Well, have you actually asked for a pay rise? Have you actually gone in and demanded? Because actually, that's what men do. We're very good at being martyrs and victims and that we're, we're so persecuted. And and yeah, women are in a lot of places in the world, but women in the West, in a pretty good position to go for it and not play the woman card. <laughs> I don't like labels because I just think labels stop people doing things. And if you're not labeled, then you don't really see the barriers of entry <laughs> into things.
0: Coming back to killing kittens and and especially female sexual empowerment, there's often this sort of paradox in society where women are like really hypersexualized, but then when we own our sexuality and and you know really feel empowered in our sexuality, you're slut shamed or you're then sexualized in a completely different way. I'm wondering. How can women own their sexuality without having to feel judged by people, I suppose?
1: I always say, you know, if you're you're worried about what people think, you're always going to be their prisoner. Only you know why you're doing something, why you're acting in a way, why you're wearing something and how that makes you feel. You can't control how other people see that. And how they see you. I've got good legs. I'm six foot. I'm leggy. If I want to wear a little dress and get the legs out and put the heels on and go out and dance and it might after a couple glasses, it might be provocatively, who knows, then I'm doing that because it's making me feel good. It's making me feel empowered. But someone else looking at me might think I'm sexualizing myself and I'm trying to get male attention. But that's not what's going on in me. So if I was worried about people thinking that about me, then I'd go, oh, I can't wear that because people are going to think this. You can't control the judgement that goes on. So you've got to do something... And own it and back yourself and be completely unapologetic about it and that's what makes me angry a lot of the time about trying to shut down you know strip clubs and stuff a lot of the time it's other it's women you see being vocal on the news about a strip club and it shouldn't be there and these women are being sexualized and I love going to strip clubs I know a lot of strippers um, and they're properly empowered a lot of them because they can dance on stage and they love that feeling of being watched and they can't be touched so who are the mugs in this picture is it the girls owning it, backing themselves, feeling empowered, dancing around a pole and feeling very confident, earning lots of money? Or is it the men that are paying money and they can't even touch the girl? Or the pit girl, you know, the whole promo girl argument of they shouldn't be doing it, they're being sexualised, they're not. My first job was for McLaren, wearing mobile one McLaren clothes when I was doing my finals at university. Bloody loved it. At no point did I feel sexualized or abused in any shape or form. I absolutely loved it and I earned good money who's anyone to sit there and judge and call themselves a feminist, but tell women what they can and cannot wear. The whole point of being a feminist is like letting girls do exactly what they want and getting out there, having all the same choices, all the freedom without being judged. The minute you start controlling women in anything, you're not a feminist. You can be a woman, but you're still not a feminist.
0: I think that's really powerful. How important do you think sex education is kind of balancing out the way we we view uh, male and female sexuality because I can't think of maybe even a single country where I think there's like adequate sex education. Um, What's your opinion on that?
1: I think it's awful. I think sex ed is awful. Um, I just saw a book actually. It was aimed at four to eight-year-olds, which is ridiculous. You know, the boys, willy gets hard and then it goes in and it's just like, again, it's not... You know, that sorry, saying that everything about sex is all about the man, you know, and the end point of sex is the guy coming at the end of it. It's sort of, that doesn't help. You know, that very much is still teaching that it is all sex is all about the guy and he's in control and it doesn't say anything about female pleasure. It does have female anatomy. I think massive, you know, consent and boundaries. It isn't taught enough and saying no and the pressure and, it, you know, everything is very taught from a science side of like, you know, here's a penis, here's a vagina, this is sex. And actually that's not what it's about. And the the female pleasure side of it and the female anatomy side of it, like 50% of women don't even know what a cervix is. I think also porn needs to come into education, you know, and actually taught that... Porn is like watching a James Bond film. It's not, it's not reality. It's not those noises aren't made. Because most boys think that them having sex with a girl will make them orgasm. And actually, I think it's over 80% of women don't actually orgasm through punitive sex. as you know, it's everything else. But it's the basics. And I think it's the only way boys are gonna come out learning. It's the only way girls are gonna come out thinking that actually they've got a voice in the bedroom. And as I said at the beginning, it's not just equality, it's equity. So it's them having that equity when it comes to sex, and actually it's not just all about the boy.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, porn is incredibly unregulated and and like you said, from the male gaze and really for male pleasure, essentially. And also because, you know, nobody really speaks about porn as well. You know, so many people watch it, but nobody actually talks about the fact that they watch it.
1: Yeah, it's not going anywhere. You know what I mean? It's not going anywhere. So people can pretend it's not there. People can do it, you know, watch it in secret. But it's there and teenagers are watching it. You know, probably boys from the age of 10 are watching it. So why don't you teach them what's right rather than ignoring it?
0: We'll finish with a segment called Answer the Internet. This is where we scour the internet for the questions the public needs the answers to. The question we will put to you today is from Edward Bliss on Reddit. Can another counterculture like what happened in the 60s actually be created again? So obviously in the 60s, there was a massive sexual revolution and, you know, a revolution within pop culture and, you know, within music um do you think that something like this can can happen again
1: i think to be honest i think we're going through one i think the last two years have definitely shown a big pushback um um in that i think the way you look at like gender and diversity that um that's you know that's similar to what happened in the 60s it's sort of the younger generation going you know not wanting to be labeled not wanting to be put in a box um and also wanting to explore sexually i mean you look at, you know the younger generation coming through in the tw- in their 20s are are much more sexually liberated um and they're also much more you know they go to the events they go to events they dress up they want to explore more sexual things but in a much more diverse way i think you know in the 60s it was it was they did explore that sexually um but it was still quite binary. It was like men and women. Um Now it's sort of, I think it's more of an identity thing now. So it's people sort of that identities, people exploring their identities and what they identify with and what tribe they're part of. They're a lot of the fringe minority groups now are to do with identity and gender. Mm-hmm.
0: And from your perspective, what makes a great business leader?
1: I think, to be honest, it's kind of people will follow... Follow you, you have to be, you know, you have to be completely true to your values. I you say about being unapologetically selfish <laughs> and empathy. I think that's actually why women make <laughs> make good business leaders. You know, there's different ways of being a leader. There's different way. I know I'm very, you know, wolf-like in how I do it. It's like I'm not a good manager. I just, I'm like lone wolf. Just goes out three thousand miles that way, comes back, circles the pack, checks they're all right, goes back out again, and I'm. Um, And that, you know, that's how I do it. And I very much leave everyone, you know, I've got good people in the team who are way better than me at everything they do and I leave them to it. I think the worst thing a leader can do is micromanage and micromanage, try and control everything. I think it's probably easier to say what are the bad bits in a leader. I think the best thing a leader can do is actually let everyone shine. You know, I've got more and more power in the last 17 years and it's about giving that power to other people to then use their power rather than try and control it. Yeah. I don't know how half my business runs, to be honest.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And just to round off the podcast, do you have any final words for the audience?
1: I mean, the final words is back yourself is the expression I use, you know, quite a lot. If every bone in your body believes in something, you've just got to go for it and ignore everyone around you. Because no matter what it is, even if it's like a furniture building company or something completely mainstream, over 95% of the people around you will doubt it and tell you you shouldn't do it, and actually what I've realised is most of the time they do that is because of their insecurities. You're changing the status quo in like your relationship, and that scares people. So back yourself and ignore the negativity. <laughs>